grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Titus. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. We'll go through that whole chapter. While you're turning, let me tell you, um, there's actually someone in our congregation I want you to be praying for. Many of you know Kim Barber. Kim Barber is, uh, how do I explain Kim? She's, she's blind. She sits on this side usually. Um, this week, her husband went to uh, the, the doctor. Normal a normal annual physical. He's pretty uh, regimented about that and found out that uh, his blood count was very low. They rushed him to the emergency room and then found out he has acute leukemia. So they kept him in the hospital. He's going to be in the hospital for a month, already on chemo. Uh, this was completely out of the blue, no signs whatsoever. And so uh, he's not a believer. Um, so I'll be praying for Kim and her husband, Bob, and, and their family. Uh, they have every reason to believe. They, they caught it early, so the doctors have every reason to believe that they're going to be able to treat it and, and that he'll go on and, and live uh, a, a good life. But if you, obviously, if you are a spouse and you find out that your, your husband is in that condition, um, um, there's, there's obviously a, a need for a sense of worry about what's, uh, what's to come. He is uh, an independent contractor. Uh, Kim works. She's uh, a crossing guard for for Fairfax County Public Schools. So right now they're they're okay. They have family nearby, um, and uh, I've talked to Kim, and so she solicits our prayers and and uh, just the the hope of God and in the healing that He brings. So as we begin today, I'll <clears throat> I'll pray uh, for her and uh, and just for His healing as they go through that, both His physical and His spiritual healing. Uh, if you're new, we are in the book of. Of Titus, and we've been in it for four weeks. We'll finish next week uh, in this five-week series, and we're looking at what it what it means to be a healthy church. What it means to be a healthy church, and so Paul was a church planner, and his uh, his mode of operation was he would go to a new area in the Roman province, and he would find people who didn't know Jesus, and he would preach the gospel, uh, the the good news of Jesus Christ, to them in hopes that some would come to faith. And he does that uh, in one of his missionary journeys, ends up in Crete, and he basically starts the, the process of establishing churches there. And then Paul continues his mission, and he leaves one of his protégés, a young man by the name of Titus, on the island to, as the, as, the cha- as the first chapter says, to finish what remained. Basically, he was trying to establish the church and make it healthy. One of the first things that he had Titus do was install leaders, he calls them elders, and then uh, teach these elders uh, to, uh, to refute false doctrine. And then as we get into chapter 2 today, he continues on by showing the ethic of what the Christian life looks like. That after you come to faith, believing in Jesus, what does it look like for us to exist together as the church, as the community of people who who love Jesus and and want to follow them. So that'll be uh, our direction as we get into chapter 2 today. Break out your Bibles again. Titus chapter 2, we're going to read all this together out loud, starting in verse 1. Read with me. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the women to, their, uh, to love their husbands and children, 
to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we pause to thank you for uh, this day. Thank you for the, the ushering in of spring and just the creativity that you as a God has in regards to to your creation, we thank you for that. We are reminded uh, that we all need your help. Uh, we pray specifically this morning a, a pastoral prayer for Kim Barber and and her husband, Bob. God, we pray for physical healing. God, we pray for good reports from the doctors as they, um, as they administer chemotherapy and as they treat him for acute leukemia. Uh, Lord, we know that you don't have to heal us. You heal us uh, because you love us. Uh, in your beloved, you love us in Jesus. You love us to bring you. You love us and heal us to bring you glory. And so, God, glorify yourself through this family. We pray, God, that you would uh, have mercy on Bob. God, that you would not only heal his body, that you heal his soul. That through this process of 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 need of of needing physical healing, God, that you would uh, bring him to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That he would um, that he would understand without doubt that he needs a savior and God that you would be glorified in this family as a church Lord God we pray that we would lift up our, our, our prayers of, of petition to uh, on behalf of Bob and, and Kim and their family and God that you uh, you would hear our prayer God and you would you would heal this man both physically and spiritually as we get into your word Lord we simply pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us we pray that in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. I got another story for you. So when my boys were younger, uh, we signed them up for, uh, for homeschool flag football. We homeschooled our, our kids, really, for all of their years until we came to, to Fairfax County uh, four years ago. And uh, it, it was kind of a mess. You know, firstly, these are all boys under 10, and they were learning the, you know, the, the, the game of football. And then you had, you had dads, like homeschooling dads, sort of teaching them. And I, you know, I was probably the worst of the worst. I grew up as a competitive tennis player. So you had all these young, young boys, and you had some dads who knew a little bit about football. The only football I had played was like sandlot football, and you know, as a kid in your, in your, your, in your backyard. I, I knew a little bit about football, obviously, from watching TV, but really nothing rudimentary about 
plays and positions and all that stuff. So, I mean, seriously, it was kind of a mess, just like chaos on the field. But uh, there I was, or, or rather, in the, in, the, in the sovereignty of God, God had me on the field with these young men because he wanted me to learn both patience and, and humility uh, through some homeschool flag football. Uh, it actually turned out to be a, a lot of fun. Uh, amongst the dads, these homeschooling dads with their homeschooled kids, we only had three goals for these kids as they were learning to, to play football. The first was... Um, move the ball down the field in the right direction. I mean, can you, I mean, you can get it, right? Like kids that age, uh, actually when they hike the ball, it actually looked more like a rugby scramble than, uh, than actually a football play. You know, somebody uh, would uh, fumble the ball and the kid would pick it up and it's like, which direction do I go? Like, go that way. So um, that was always interesting. Uh, move the ball down the field in the right direction, trying to get a touchdown. The second was, don't leave the field while the game is going on. Um, yeah, this was flag, it was, this was like, it was safe. They just had flags on, but you know, boys are boys, and every once in a while, it would get a little bit rough. Nobody got beat up or anything, but a little bit rough. Somebody's foot would get stepped on, somebody would fall, and you know, young kids that age, when they get hurt a little bit, where do they go? They go to the sideline to find mama. They leave the game before they should. And then thirdly, thirdly, we tried to teach them to play your position. Um, the art of if everybody, if the quarterback's being the quarterback and the lineman's being the lineman and the running back's being the running back, you know, the, 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 uh, the wide receiver's being the wide receiver, then our plays are going to go off a lot better. And actually, it's going to be a lot of fun. So that's what, that's, I mean, those were the three things that we were trying to, to teach them. I, I would add one, don't pick your nose in public. And definitely don't pick and eat that booger on the end of your finger. Because y'all know the young kids, are, uh, they're aiming to do that. In fact, they're doing it right now back there in kids' ministry. <laughs> so in a sense, this is what Paul is doing here in chapter 2. He's telling Titus, you've got this motley crew of, 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 of Christians of various generations and of different stages of growth. And it's kind of a mess. You've got people... Ranging from retired people to, to young men, you got some business leaders, you got young women with, with, uh, that are homemakers with kids, and for the church to run smoothly, you, you got to give them some order. Put some leaders in place, and the, the leaders should be encouraging these people, exhorting them to do three things. Keep themselves going in the same direction, and that's the direction of, that the gospel sends us. It, it sends us Godward, right? Second thing is stay in the game. What's the game? The game of the Christian life. We're actually playing a game, and the game doesn't end until you die and go to be with Jesus. And then thirdly, um, our third goal is to play our roles, which, which, which is to say God has roles for us in this life that we're supposed to play as, as Christians. Well, I like what Paul, how he structures his instruction um, to Titus in this part of his letter. Look at verse one. He says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And so Paul is, is bookending his guidance here in chapter two with the gospel. He, he leads with the gospel. He's actually going to, to end up on the, the same gospel note as well. And in, in verse one, he's saying two things. First, he's saying, teach sound doctrine. The word sound here is the 
the word healthy. It's, it's the Greek word that really would mean healthy. And so last week we talked about what does healthy doctrine look like? It, it's, it's the gospel. Okay, I'm not going to articulate all that we talked about last week in regards to the gospel. Go on the Internet and check that out. But uh, as I was doing my research this week, I ran across a, a pastor friend of mine who had just a, a, a neat way of articulating uh, what the gospel looks like in our life. And he said, Here, here's the gospel. It's, it's God encouraging us to look upward to the beauty and the glory of the God who saved you. It's God inviting us to look backward to the price that Jesus paid on the cross as he died in your place for your sin. But it's also God pointing us forward to where he's taking us and also what he's making us. So there's transformation going on in us as we understand and live out the gospel. So Paul is firstly saying, teach them to live, uh, to live light in light of the gospel. But he's also saying something else. He's saying, do those things which accord with the gospel. And that, that word accord really means do the things that line up with. That's, that's a fitting response to the gospel. What are the implications of the gospel for your life? Do those. And really, that's what he's talking about in verse 2 to verse, uh, verse 10 in our text here. And we're going to get to that. But look at how he ends, ends this passage. Verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And so the, the word for there could be translated the word because. And so Paul is saying, teach the church to do all of these things that I'm going to tell you they need to do because of the grace of God. Live, live, live the way we're, we're supposed to live as the Bible articulates our, our lifestyle, the ethic of living, not just because someone is telling you to do it, not just because you're trying to have the right behavior, not because... Doing right is going to get you favored with God. Do it because of the very grace of God. Do it because of the gospel. And so our our direction here this this morning is healthy churches have healthy community and the gospel is what forms that community. Paul's going to address six groups of people. This is the community. okay? A, a hodgepodge of different people from all different generations and all different walks of life. He calls them a community, the church, and he gives instruction to six groups of people, and he starts with the older men. Verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So the first question that y'all want to know is, I mean, what constitutes an older man? All right, so I looked up the Hebrew for this verse, and uh, I, I consulted at least eight commentaries, and it said old actually starts at about 52. All right, so y'all know I'm 50, right? So it can't, it can't be 50 as being old. Um, actually, this is, this is Greek, right? The New Testament is written in Greek and Aramaic, so I'm actually lying. All right, so, so what's old? Now, there, the Bible doesn't qualify what old is in terms of an age. It doesn't give us an age. If you look in the Old Testament, the Levites uh, actually performed their service to their priestly duties in the temple till they were about 50, okay? But um, what we can take away from Scripture's teaching about older men is that they had lived a little bit of life, okay? Honestly, I would say an older man is, is a gray beard, okay? They've, they've not only lived life, but they've got the, they've, there's some outward things about their life that actually show that they have, have experience in life. I think what the Scripture would uh, commend to us 
is that an older man is one that's not just gray hair, but he's venerable. We can look at their life and see some experience, but also their lives command a little bit of respect and that we should follow their example. And, you know, here's the interesting thing. We have a very young church. I think the median age of most of the men in our church is between 27, maybe 33. I would eke it up to like 35 at the most. So we've got some young men here. And so what do you do when you have very few true older men in a congregation? I think his instruction would be that those of you who have lives that are commendable, that that your life warrants other people looking at you and following your example, you are to to fill this spot in a church that's full full of young people like ours. And, and so that that's that's your that's my exhortation to you. Don't just block me out because I said the word older and you don't have any gray hair yet. Okay? Because one one day you're gonna get there. You're gonna have some gray hair. Not only that, you're gonna have the the experience of the hard knocks of life that come with um, that come with being an older man. And so here's, here's what he says. And we won't dwell long because Paul is going to give us several lists for all of these, and many of these overlap. But I think the one word that, uh, that's unique in regards to this, his instruction to older men, is, is the word endurance. He is the word steadfast. I'm translating it endurance. He says that older men should be sound, should be healthy in their endurance. Um, and I think that here's the exhortation to, to older men. Once an older man gets through life, I mean, they're in the third, the, the last, the third phase, the last phase of their life. The temptation might be to, to, to check out because they've already met all their requirements. They need to, to, to do everything. They've checked off all of the blocks that they want to check off in life. They've amassed enough money or, or they've given up on making more money. Um, they've either... Uh, their, their natural action might be to, to think of themselves uh, in, in the light of, all right, so I've done all, I've spent all my life doing things for other people. Now it's time for me, my hobbies, my goals, my likes, my interests. And perhaps they might feel they have nothing left to contribute. And so they would shy away from giving of themselves fully to, to other people or in service to, to other organizations. And Paul simply says to the older men, he says to Titus, exhort the older men to, to endurance, to, to not give up uh, on the game. Stay in the game until the game is over. And so he says a couple words. He says, be sober-minded. That's just having a level head. Having a level head. To be well thought out in every area of your life. And uh, this would be a man being wise about his decisions, being careful in in his judgments, uh, but not to let go of the hope that he has for the, the duration of his life, but also the hope that he has for other people as he's, he's bringing them up. Uh, Paul says that uh, they should be dignified, which simply is respectable or, or reverent. Paul uses this word several times. He says that older men should be self-controlled. This is a key idea in this passage. He's going to use this word self-control for at least four of the, the people that he'll name um, in terms of giving guidance for how they're supposed to live. Self-control simply means that their passions are to be under control. And uh, because these are, old, are older men, Paul isn't just talking about lust, you know, the, the lust of life. Really, he's talking about them not thinking about their own needs. They should, at this stage in life, defer their desires to the needs of the church and to the needs of the next generation. Your, your life's accomplishments shouldn't just be a pile of money left in a bank 
or a house full of a bunch of stuff that you don't need anymore. You, you should be thinking beyond that. He says, an older man should sow into the kingdom of God. Don't give your, your last years to, to fly fishing, playing golf, and collecting toys. Give it to the kingdom of God. And lastly, he says, older men should be sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. These, these are common words that Paul is using. He, Paul, he uses these, this triad of words, uh, faith, love, and steadfastness, in, in several of his epistles. And really, the three represent the outworking of hope. I mean, what are we hoping, what are we hoping for in life that, that all of these would increase? Faith, love, and our endurance would increase. And so for the godly man, Paul says they're to be sound, healthy, confident in their trust of the Lord. And he's exhorting them, stay in the race and finish strong. And then he goes to older women, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. I don't know why he stuck that wine thing in here for the older women. Isn't that interesting? Obviously, it was a cultural thing. Um, Here's what one commentator said. I think this is true. Uh, Older women can sometimes quit caring what people think, so they lose their filters on speaking their mind or talking badly about people. What is significant is that the ugly spirit was always there. It was just hidden under the charms of beauty and the desire not to appear mean. But as you get older, your your natural physical beauty fades, and you quit caring what people think, and then this selfish, ugly character comes out. All right. So as I say that, I got these pictures of a couple of older women that were that have been in my life, in my mind. And surely you got some in your in your mind, too. So it might be grandma or your great grandmother. For me, it was my grandma Tucker, who uh, I spent every afternoon up through elementary age because I went to her house after school. And uh, my grandmother was a Christian, but she was a bitter Christian. And as she got older, she got meaner and a little uglier, too. Sorry, Grandma. It's the truth. I was thinking about the old lady from next door. Now, she wasn't old when I started going over my grandmother's house, but by the time I grew up and came back to the neighborhood, I mean, she was old. And so I, I can see what, what Paul, the instruction that he's given to some of the, the women that have been in my life. And, and here is, is what he's, this is the contrast Paul is saying. He said, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And he's holding up this, this other picture of a woman who, who's advanced in age, but she hasn't advanced in her, her, her beauty has grown because there's a godly character on the inside of her that shines through. So no, it's no longer the, the outward beauty that means anything because she has this beauty from the inside that everyone sees and they adore her because of that beauty. And so many of you are, are familiar with this term, a woman of Titus 2. Titus to women, that's, that's what Paul is commending older women to, that, that these older, godly, wiser women. In fact, I would even, cast, I would even put aside the, the older phrase here because there are some women who are, can and are supposed to exhibit these qualities of being able to, to come along in a mature way and help other women and mothers know what it means to be a person who's godly in character, both in their home, um, in the workplace, and in all the, the avenues of life that God would allow them to live. That's a, that's a Titus 2 woman. And interestingly, um, 
you know, it's the elders that, that rule, that govern the church. When Paul gives instruction to who's supposed to mentor and train the, the other women in the church, he doesn't say, elders of the church, go and tell the other women to do this. He says, the older women, the tightest two women, are supposed to come and, and be the elders for the younger women in the church. Who's the complement to the elders in the church? I mean, what's the role of a woman in the church? It's to be a Titus 2 woman. You're coming alongside the elders because you, women are going to have, um, I'm trying to think of how to say this nicely. Women are going to have uh, uh, just not just a, a feeling about what's going on in the church, but they're going to get, they're going to have conversations um, and they're going to feel really the, the emotion that goes under the undergirds a church, perhaps more than men do, perhaps more than the men leaders do. And I think Titus two women are important, and so uh, and he then he turns uh, you know to this idea of, of young women, the category of young women. Verse verse four, he says, so the older women are to train, so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self controlled pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be Reviled. All right. Can anybody pick out anything that might be controversial in those two verses? Right. Check it out. Let's skip these verses and go to verse six. All right. So, <laughs> you know, I want to skip those verses and go to verse six, but we need to. I, I think I have some good things to say, so I'll uh, be praying for me. Let me let me caveat everything I'm going to say by this. Paul is speaking to a culture in the first century where most of the women, from the youngest to the older, got married at a young age. And so these are primarily mothers who had children, and their primary duty was to be in the home, tending to the home, okay? Uh, this is the culture of the first century. Paul is addressing the, the audience in front of him, or at least the audience in front of Titus. And so if you are... Uh, a professional working woman, don't count yourself out of, out of what I'm going to say. Okay? It doesn't mean he's not addressing you. He's addressing the, the cultural um, situation of the first century. Uh, you just have to, uh, I think there's instruction here for you, um, as, as, as I hopefully will bring out. But, there, but there's going to be more for you than that. Okay? So there's, there are implications of what Paul's going to say for those of you that aren't necessarily uh, Mothers with children or mothers that that um, that stay in the home. So with that, older women are to train the younger women to firstly love their husbands and their children. Uh, this is interesting. This is the only verse in the Bible that gives specific instruction for a woman to love her husband. OK, I mean, only one. As opposed to the like eight to ten verses that tell a husband he's supposed to lo uh, love his wife. Why? Because men are hard-headed. We need to be told over and over again. I'm I'm kidding. Um, here's the thing: women are uh, there's uh, there's this nurturing instinct. There's this emotional kind of love that comes from a wife toward her husband, but also toward her children. That's that's natural for a woman, and so. Paul, uh, he's, he's not negating instruction to women, but he's saying, um, I don't need to talk to you about that. But here's the emphasis. The emphasis that Paul is giving um, Titus through the older women to teach the younger women is not so much falling in love and the emotion and the romance and uh, the eroticism of, of love, but it's learning to love 
with sacrifice and service. You see the difference? I mean, it's, it's for a woman to know that her love is not just always supposed to be filled with emotion and eroticism or romance, but there's supposed to be a sacrificial serving kind of love, really in the likes of how Jesus loves us and how Jesus loved the Father. So young wives are to be trained in this, which implies that it can and should be brought under control. Speaking of self-control, Paul uses the word here, self-control and pure. That women, older women are to teach the younger women to be self-controlled and pure. This is the second occurrence of, uh, of the exhortation to be uh, self-controlled. The, uh, the connotation here is one of sexual fidelity, which tells you that men aren't the only ones that can, can cheat and, and go astray in, in a relationship. He says that the older women are to teach the young women to work at home, to be working at home. Um, this obviously is a controversial phrase if you don't take it in context. This doesn't mean that a young woman, that young women aren't to work outside the home. Why? Because there, there are several places in the Bible that mention a woman working outside the home, and the Bible condones it. Okay, The Bible doesn't say a woman has to be barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen. The, the, those aren't words that, we, that you see coming from the Bible. Okay, but you also can't just take um, uh, a sentence from the Bible that a woman should be working in a home and take it out of context of of the the day and age of which it was written, but also uh, the context of what the whole Bible says. I got to find out where I was. Because here's why he's saying this. The, the tendency for young women would be to, to be lured away from her God-given responsibility for, and forsake that for the promise of, of a different kind of life, uh, a life lived by fulfillment elsewhere. Um, for the wife or for the mother, there were, there were duties, should I say, there, there's work to be done in the home, taking care of the kids, all the things that have to happen in the house, and he's saying that as opposed to being lazy, running from uh, running from house to house, or gossiping. All right, so he's speaking to a culture. He's speaking to a culture where most of the women were married and had kids, and he's saying, "Don't neglect the duty that you have at home." He's not saying you cannot work out of the home. He continues and says that the uh, younger women are supposed to be kind, and here he's speaking uh, in regards to hospitality. Uh, hospitality in the Bible is um, an exhortation to entertain strangers from your home to be hospitable. And then if saying working at home wasn't bad enough, Paul has to say they have to be submissive to their own husbands. All right. So submissiveness isn't about notions of inferiority. It's not a I have to be submissive to my husband. It's I get to notice. It doesn't say that a woman has to be submissive to all the men that are in the world everywhere they are. It says a woman is supposed to be submissive to her husband, and it's, I'm going to willingly submit to um, uh, this authority like Jesus willingly submitted to the will of his father. It it really is in the likes of that. And it's in recognition that there's an equality among the sexes. Genesis 127 says God created them male and female. Male and female, he created them. He even repeats it in Genesis 127. God has established a created order, which includes a masculine headship. If you go back to Genesis, remember when God made Adam and Eve? He, in most of the things in creation, he dealt with Adam. 
when he gave commands to subdue the earth and have dominion over it, he gave that to Adam. Adam was in turn supposed to share that with his wife, and they together were supposed to do it. When God gave Adam the, pro, the, the prohibition not to eat of the, of, the, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he gave that to Adam. Adam, in turn, was supposed to share that with his wife, and they were supposed to abide by that together. And so Adam and Eve, uh, Eve rather, was deceived by the serpent, Genesis 3. Um, Eve took of the fruit, ate it. Her weak, passive husband was standing right beside her, allowing her to do it, and then... Guess what happened? They hid themselves. God came looking for them. Did God go to Eve and say, Eve, what in the world did you do? No. He went to Adam and he said, Adam, where are you? And so it's, this, is the, this is the precedence the Bible is showing in, in the sexes. It's not a, it's not a male-dominated, uh, women-in-the-kitchen-barefoot kind of a a persona of the Bible is presenting to us. It's, it's showing us a that that blessing, that authority um, comes through the man in the Bible because Adam was created first, and God is establishing an order such that that headship also requires responsibility and loving care. All right, so I beat that up enough. Here's why he's saying all this, and it's in verse two. Look at the latter half of verse two. He says that the word of God may not be reviled. I like to see this as the, the world is watching. This is what this is one of Paul's major points here as he's given this instruction to Titus. Why have a healthy church? Why have healthy leaders? Why have healthy community inside of the church? Because the world is watching and you have the opportunity through what you do and who you are to to put God on display. And I think uh, there's no better place in a Christian marriage, in a Christian home, and really how you conduct your, your ordinary life for you to do that, for you to make God attractive by how you live the life that he's encouraged you to live. When you see people living uh, this beautiful combination of sexual equality and, and, and a complementarianism um, um, that's in the likes of the Bible, I think it commends the gospel. That's what Paul is after. And if I could philosophize just for a couple seconds, um, I don't know if you realize this. We live in a culture that's that's more and more being confused, and we're and we're and we're more confused, especially in in, a, in association with with gender. It's it's becoming harder and harder to discern what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. It's becoming harder and harder in our culture to discern what being a masculine man and a feminine woman is in our culture because our culture is trying to blur all those. It's trying to blur all those lines. I mean, would you agree? You don't have to agree. I'm the one preaching. Um, and, and here's what I mean by this. Um, we used to just have the the LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, uh, transgender terms of people who were uh, other than just straight man and woman. Um, and so we're developing new terms. There's, there's the term metrosexual, which defines a, uh, a man or a woman that identifies with their, their uh, anatomical self, but then in, in other areas of their life, they choose to live whatever the reverse of that sex is. Uh, 
we have court cases now of, of transgender children who uh, are anatomically one sex, but in their mind they are a different sex, and they're arguing because they want to use the bathroom of the sex in their mind. And, um, I mean, what do you say about that? I mean, what we say, these people need Jesus. I mean, there's obviously something going on there, and, and we're not to be judgmental or to be harsh in regards to that. They got something going on, um, and they definitely need Jesus. But if, if I'm a man and say that I'm, I'm Superman and I jump out of a window thinking I'm Superman, does that make me Superman? It, it doesn't. We have a 60-year-old man in our congregation, in our congregation, in our in our country, who was a former Olympian that uh, that struggled with his sexual identity, and of course, out in the open, this man, Bruce Jenner, um, gets a partial sex change. Right? I don't think he's had the whole thing done yet, and we call him a hero when Bruce becomes Caitlyn. And so we live in a world that's, I mean, we're struggling with this idea of gender confusion. And, and I slow down here because here's the cultural pressure. The cultural pressure has leaked over into how we define ourselves and how we define our roles as men and women, such that when we come to texts like this in Titus, where, where, Titus is, where, where Paul is encouraging Titus to say specific things about how we play the role and the, and the God-given way that, he, that, that God has ordered for us, for it to work right, for it to be a healthy community, um, the culture has made that hard for us. It's blurred the lines for us. And I would say especially it's robbed women of the blessings and the joys of homemaking and motherhood. The feminist movement has promised something for our women that it can't deliver on. It's, it's, a, it's akin to Joel Osteen making the promise through a book that you can live your best life now. Is it true that God wants you to be blessed and happy in this life? Absolutely, the Bible says it. But, but the, the story of the Bible is that our best life is not lived here. Otherwise, we have, I mean, if in this life, Paul says, if this is our only hope, we are, we are pitiful people. Our hope is yet to come. Our best life is yet to come. And so I think the fallout from what's going on culturally and the pressures that we have on, on this idea of sex and gender has been disastrous. And, and obviously, we're not the only culture. We're not the only generation of people that's dealt with this. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't be dealing with these issues. Why, why is he talking about this stuff? Because it was going on in Crete. Okay, so we're not a singular people um, to deal with this. But this is one of those areas, young men, this is one of those areas, young women, this is one of those areas, older men and women, where the values of the world and the values of the kingdom of God stand in stark contrast with each other. And I would say you got to stay in your word, stay connected to the spirit of God and trust God and his gospel to steer you and not let the society decide how you're supposed to live and what you're supposed to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul goes on fourthly to talk about young men. Verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger women to be self-controlled. All right, that was a quick verse. You got likewise. 
you know, likewise is important here. He's saying likewise because he's connecting, connecting it to everything he said before. He's saying all the things I've just said to the young women can apply to the young men as well. All right. So young men, Paul is not saying you need to be working out of the home. You know, don't quit your job and like go in, go go work at home. He's not saying that. What he is saying that there are seasons of life for which you need to um, you need you might need to adjust yourself to to fit the the life the life stage and the things going on in your home. I, I, I'd say if like if you have a young family and it's in you to write a book, maybe you need to put that book off until your 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 family can like give you the time to write that book. Perhaps if you are a young man with a young family and you got young kids, um, you can't spend four of the seven days a week with, at guy time, like going out, golfing, drinking, goofing off, doing what guys do when we want to do it, right? I think he's, he's saying that. Interestingly, you know, Paul gives all this instruction to, uh, to the young women. He's, he's got like seven things the young women need to do. He's only got one for the guys, just one. And that one is they're supposed to be self-controlled. Um, and this is because this idea of self-control can be the Achilles heel for a young man, whether he's married or whether he's single. The idea of being self-controlled, being ruled by our desires, our pleasures, and, and wanting recognition. And so the, the wisdom of Proverbs says this, Proverbs 25, verse 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. I mean, who wants to be in that city like that? And I think the enemy specifically attacks our young men in this area. And so the, the encouragement here, young men, is to, is to pull your pants up, is to, um, is to not think that you have to, to, uh, to work this out in your own strength. It's to uh, it's to understand the gospel, the, the, uh, a grace-based way of overcoming those things that you are obsessed with and that uh, take up much of your time. And, and more importantly here, he's talking about discipleship. That's what Paul is getting at. This, this overall topic here is discipleship. Don't, don't go do life alone. There's a community of people with varying experiences and stages of life that you, that you can avail yourself to. And perhaps you need not just the grace of God, but you need the means of grace reading the Bible, prayer, studying the Word, but you need some people around you. You need mentorship and discipleship. That's what he's talking about in Titus 2. Paul goes on, Paul goes on to, uh, to acknowledge pastors and leaders. In fact, he gives instruction to Titus himself, verse 7. He says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. And so Paul, in his instruction to Titus, is, he's really talking to pastors and leaders, all those leaders of a church. And he's saying, your, your lifestyle is, is on blast before all the community. And so um, be able to articulate the faith. He said, don't shy away from doing that, but be intelligent and winsome in how you do it. And why is that? Because He goes back to what he says in verse 5 in regards to the women. The, the outsiders are looking. You want the world to be able to look in and not give uh, a charge that we're doing something, something wrong. He says specifically, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say 
about us. And so when people peer into who we are as a church, they won't look at the pastor, they won't look at the leader and say, well, I mean, gosh, that Christianity is a hope. Look at that guy. He's leading the church. Verse 9, he starts talking about bond service, and this is the last group of people that Paul talks about. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The word bondservant there is the Greek word doulos. It's the word, it's a slave. It's talking about slave. It's the same word Paul uses to describe himself in, in chapter 1, verse 1, where he says, I'm a slave to God. I, God, and I belong to God. Um, this is the first century, and so obviously as Americans, when we think of sla- you know, we're slave, we think of the transatlantic slave trade that took Africans and brought them to all parts of the world, primarily to the United States, and, and they were succumbed to a very brutal type of, of slavery. Uh, this isn't this is slavery, but it's not the same type of slavery. Um, but it is sla- slavery nonetheless, and and Paul is addressing it. He addresses it uh, uniquely in other places, like in the book Philemon. Uh, Paul is not condoning slavery here, but he's given to instructions to to people in different walks of life. And so he says, if you're a slave and you happen to be a Jesus loving, Jesus following slave, then these are the instructions I'm going to give you. And and this is what he says: slaves aren't to be controlled. Um, Slaves are rather slaves um, shouldn't argue with their masters and they shouldn't steal. That's, that really are the two things that he tells slaves specifically not to do. And he tells them that because that was the thing that they were they probably tempted to do. If you're a slave, then you are coming under a certain degree of persecution. Um, you don't have the best uh, lot in life and it would be easy for them to. Um, to buck up against everything their master or whoever they were, their overseer was. And it was, it was just that in this case. And so he's saying, don't argue with those who are masters over you and definitely don't pilfer, don't steal. Um, and if you do that, you're going to make Christ look good. Uh, the non-Christians are the ones that argue and pilfer and, and do the things that they shouldn't. Make Jesus look good by not doing those things. Obviously, by implication, I mean, the application for us here would be um, the, the most likely application would be an employee-employer relationship. Um, and, and here's the guidance that Paul would give us in the likes of this. He's saying um, we should put our hope and our love for God on display in how we and how we live, but more importantly, how we work in the workplace. What you do, what you say, and in the fashion that you work. Is, is saying more about the God that you love and serve than anything that you do. Uh, I love what Kim, Tim Keller says. Tim Keller wrote a book, Every Good Endeavor. It's about uh, you know following God in the workplace, basically. Uh, and Tim Keller gives us four, uh, four values that those who are Christian employees in a workplace should hold dear. And the first he says, integrity. And so instead of being someone that can get away with stealing something, Tim Keller says that you should, uh, you should have integrity. Uh, don't do it because God always sees what you do. Okay, so you got, God is watching. Next he says uh, excellence. We should work with excellence. This is not just doing things at, at the minimum. Don't do it because you have to, but, but go overboard. Do it with joy and serve to bless your employer and those people that are working around you. Next he says servanthood. Christian employees should see their work as acts of service 
toward other people, but primarily to the person that you're working for. And then lastly, he talks about hope, and that's what verse 10 gets at. Verse 10 says, showing all good faith, which means that you don't have to set your identity. You're not who you are because of how you perform at work or what people say about you at work. You're who you are because of what Jesus says about you. His bottom line is is simply this. We should approach our work as someone who does everything to adorn the gospel, the, the doctrine of God, our Savior. It's like putting the gospel on and taking it with you everywhere that you go. And so if you conduct yourself with purity, grace, hope, um, people, you aren't going to have to, to do strange things to, to witness of God to other people because what you do is going to speak louder as a witness for God than anything that you would be able to say. Three observations and I'll be, I'll be done. Three observations about a healthy community. The first is, is simply this. Uh, this ethic, and you know, Paul is talking about behaviors here, but I hate that word behavior because uh, because Christians are bent toward having the right behavior, and that's not what God is is impressing upon us here. He's giving us a right way to live, okay, a- an ethic, and so this ethic is your best witness. Um, these values are completely countercultural because. When people notice that you're doing them, they're going to take notice. Uh, my, my son and I, David, were at a competition, a drumline competition in Woodbridge, and this guy, a young guy with a skinhead, and he had a purple mohawk. And the mohawk was like, like straight up, like six inches high, and it was purple. So a white skinhead and then a purple mohawk. And, I mean, everybody, all the parents at least, that were around in the stands watching on, couldn't help but stare at this dude. Why? Because he stood out. He was countercultural, at least for us 40 to 50-year-old parents. He was countercultural. And I think in the, in the same way, God wants us to, to be countercultural. He wants us to live lives of self-control and submission. He wants us to, to do that so that God is attractive. He wants us to work with integrity and excellence in the workplace and let that get people's attention. And so let me ask you, it's a reflective question for you. When is the last time that how you suffer, that how you conduct your marriage, how generous you are, made someone take notice of you and ask you about your lifestyle? Second, the best testimony of the gospel happens in the ordinary. This is like what we said uh, three weeks ago when we talked about um, the, the list of qualifications for a leader, an elder. The, the most extraordinary thing about that list is none of those were extraordinary. They were very ordinary things that God would have us be and do to lead his church. The same thing is here. Uh, these aren't extraordinary um, character traits or values that, that Paul is, is giving to Titus to impress upon the people. A lot of times we think that to live a, a great Christian life, we got to have written a book, um, stand before thousands of people, be on TV so that all, you know, all kinds of people are hearing us and that there's massive following behind us. And Paul says, no, that's not the case. Most often, great Christianity is judged from what, right, um, the things that you do right in your home. Right, the things you do right in your home. But not just your home, at work and in your private life. And so let me ask you reflectively, if we judge your faith only by your relationships at home, how would you measure up? Lastly, 
this, this behavior that Paul is uh, professing here, this ethic of life, flows directly out of the gospel. And we've begun, we, we're going to end right where we've begun. Verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And Paul says to uh, to Titus, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Paul is not giving Titus uh, a to-do list. These aren't things that if we do them, God will love us. What What he's doing is, He's, he's showing us the natural fruits of the gospel. If you live a Godward, God-centered, Jesus-loving life, then these are the things that should come out of your life. And it's going to be something that's going to be attractive, not just to, to those who, who love you because you're you. It's going to be attractive to those people who are far from God. And that's, that's his goal here. How, how can we be attractive to those people who are far from God? And so the the imperative, the overall imperative that Paul is trying to get over to us is, is plant yourself within the story of the grace of God so that when you look up, you see this beautiful glory of a God that loves you. And when you look back, you see all the things that God has done for you in Jesus to die in your place for your sin. And then you look ahead and see, wow, my hope isn't in this life. My hope is in the life that God has for me to come. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. I pray that it would not return void, that you, through the seeds of the gospel, through your infallible word, would um, divide our hearts and our spirits. And God, that you would um, cause some of these seeds to grow. God, that we would see ourselves in uh, Paul's instruction to Titus, whether we're an older man, an older woman, a younger woman, a young man, um, a leader or a worker in the workplace. God, I pray that we would be people who would adorn your gospel, your gospel of, of, of a great grace, and that the way that we conduct our lives out in the open for all to see would be a reflection of the good news of Jesus, and it would be him um, that we profess with our mouths, but more importantly, that we would confess with the way we live our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.